Hi, and welcome to Doing the Opposite Business Disruptors, the podcast where you get to meet leaders who have swum against the tide, thrown out the rule book, and changed the way their sector does business for good. I'm Jeff Dewing, and I'm the founder and CEO of Cloud Facilities Management, an FM business where we thrive on taking data-driven risk so our clients don't have to. Today, we're going to meet Mark Webb. Mark has been living with his condition of multiple sclerosis since the 90s, although not officially diagnosed until 2007. He has actively behaved in a way that allows him to lead an almost normal life. During his career at Dixon's Retail, latterly Dixon's Carphone, he tells his story of the support the organisation and the institution offered him in a total caring way, which also helped him grow within the organisation, despite the barriers that he faced. He soon reached the top of his game as head of media and PR at Dixon's Carphone, working a reduced week to allow his therapy, and he enjoyed every moment. Since moving on, Mark now enjoys helping the disability community through a fantastic charity called Shift.ms. Mark also, incredibly, plays wheelchair rugby, although he does claim he's not very good, and I think that might be a bit of humbleness. Now, I'm really interested to understand more about Mark's challenges along his journey and the impact his mindset had had on the way he went about navigating those challenges. Hello, and welcome, Mark, and thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for the invite. You're more than welcome. So I'm really looking forward to this. I've done quite a bit of research on you. I have some knowledge of the disability agenda because of some very close friends I have that run Purple Tuesday. Um, And I'm fascinated to hear your story after reading quite a bit of stuff on you, actually. uh, It makes a really, really good reading, interesting reading. So I guess, Mark, firstly, can you try and set the scene for us first and foremost about your condition when you first become aware of it. I understand that you were diagnosed in, in 2007 officially, but sort of try and set the scene for us about the journey you've been on and the challenges you've had to navigate. Yeah, so um, I, I've got multiple sclerosis. Um, I, I don't think this will be on camera, but um, below my waist and below the camera that you and I are looking at um, is both a wheelchair and a suprapubic catheter, so um, uh, a tube through my tummy where I can wee. So pour it in, pour it out. It's quite quite handy, that. Um, In terms of um, diagnosis, like many people um, with multiple sclerosis, it creeps up on you because it it, it comes and goes early on um, before it gets more advanced. So I can trace my first symptoms to the street and the date, well, the year at least, 1992, when I was working for Euro Disney. And my first symptoms were three days of pins and needles, or or actually nails and needles, I call them, down my left-hand side, um, which then went, um, and I ignored it. Um, I later convinced myself I'd had a minor stroke, which, of course, if you're having a stroke, you get to hospital. So, But I was in my 20s and, and ignoring stuff. Um, later on, I had bladder issues uh, and various other, but I didn't put things together until um, 2007, um, as you said, so 15 years. And if you do the math, that's also my 30th anniversary of having MS is, yeah, this year. 
Wow. And of course, you've, you've been on a, a career journey that's had to navigate and manage those challenges where I guess in the absence of you even knowing that you, you had that condition, you're having to presumably justify the various impact that that's having on you without really understanding why. Yes, yes, um, it, it, it's had a huge impact. Um, actually, as we're talking, I'm roughly a week into medical retirement. So apologies if you hear some building work behind or off camera. That's because um, we're making some significant adjustments to our house so that we can stay in it with me, a disabled person. Um, but throughout my career, yes, it, it's 15 years I was hiding it or not hiding it, ignoring it until it became obvious that it was something wrong. And thereafter, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, um, I, I depended, I, I, I think I did well, but I also depended on the goodwill and, and kindness and a word that's um, common in disability circuits, allyship, so support from uh, people around me. Um, so yes, it, it's had a, a monumental effect on my life. As I said, I'm retired now, but I, I had a good innings. I, I got to, I know I look 21, um, but I'm actually 53 <laughs> and I've done well. Um, and I um, I am not stopping in any way. My last work was for a charity called Shift.ms, which is a social network which engages about 40,000 people with MS worldwide. I'm gutted to have left that, but I've got so many bits and bobs and campaigning going on. And I'm actually filming tomorrow, following up on a TV ad I did last year. So I'm not stopping. I've just had to move back from the the daily grind. Good. Glad to hear it. (laughs) And I think... um... What was interesting when I read your story is that the journey you've had, which is going to bring you incredible wisdom, I guess, to enable you to to um, face some of the challenges you face. But the, the bit I really did enjoy was the story with um, Dixon's car phone um, and how they reacted when they established that there was clearly a problem. What, tell us about that. Yes, um, it, actually, it was Dixon's retail when that was established. So, um, so okay. 2007 was my diagnosis. I could point at three areas where where they were just wonderful. So obviously when I was diagnosed, um, we had one young child and we later had another one. I went uh, off work for a couple of weeks to smash walls and cry and grieve and whatever. And uh, that's an ongoing process as you get worse. Um, But by the time they came back, um, the team around me, and again, using that phrase allyship, they'd done some research into MS and, and not just the condition, which is called sometimes the snowflake disease because it affects every single person differently, um, but also uh, how I would be feeling. So I carried on. I was head of, uh, group, uh, head of uh, group PR, so the corporate PR at the time, and I could carry on for a good while, two or three years perhaps, That's one uh, fantastic um, way of the team dealing with me. Two or three years later, I was really struggling. Um, If you know PR, that's uh, a lot of time in London, drinking with journalists, long hours, uh, strange calls during a a crisis on a Sunday evening. And I was starting not to cope. And I'm going to paraphrase, but I was called into a room. I had dreaded the moment. And I was either expecting the guilty check the check that was, yeah, thanks very much, or if you go into the sunset, but, you know, uh, bye-bye. Or 
uh, Mark, uh, you're not coping, uh, so we're going to make you chief photocopier and leave you in the corner or whatever. Um, neither of those things happened. Actually, what they said was, again, paraphrasing, look, Mark, we love what you do, but you're not coping or you're not going to cope. What can we do to create a role for you and for the business that will keep you working but also benefit the business? Um, now, it so happened, so this is 2009, 2010, when social media was becoming more and more important as a communications tool. Um, you know, we'd gone through the Facebook and Farmville phase, Twitter, and I was in, engaging with journalists more on Twitter than, than on the phone, because on, on the phone, I would talk to a business journalist on either in a crisis or selling a story or a quarterly result. But now I was tweet. I was either tweeting with them every day or regularly, reporting so and so from the Mail on Sunday is reporting about green energy. What could we do, etc. So it, it became obvious that I could work as a, a new role, head of group social media, which was um, not the the funky, the innocent drink type stuff. It was the corporate work. So there were three feeds, essentially. Yeah. There was mine talking to journalists. There was the Dixon's car, car retail, then Dixon's car phone PLC uh, feed and uh, Sebastian James, who now runs Boots. But I, I always believe in authenticity in, in comms. Um, but I nagged him to tweet or suggested him tweets, which he would then put out in his own voice. And two things happened. Well, three. One, I, I felt still valuable to the company, and I think I was. Two, Sebastian became the um, most followed uh, FTSE 100 tweeter, his CEO on Twitter. Um, and um, finally, uh, the, the, the feeds were of such interest that, that they became a new outlook for, for journalists. And we actually had the tweets, my tweets, Seb's tweets, Dixon's Carphone's tweets, and particularly the Telegraph picked it up and they would print those in the results pages. And uh, it was just amazing. And I, I'm, I'm just surprised nobody else has done it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fascinating, especially as you say, you, it's almost like you begin that journey. And um, I mean, I guess the bit that really excites me about that that story is when you've got a corporate and and as we all know, there's lots of corporates and there's lots of corporates that talk the talk but don't walk the talk. And yes. to see and to listen and to hear uh, a corporate like Dixon's and then Dixon's car phone behave in a humane way to the extent they clearly did with you is is really, really refreshing. It just brings back to the reality of, you know, some of the things that we're all getting so wrong in the way in which we perhaps, you know, solve problems and address people's problems and, uh, and take them seriously and realise that those people, despite their ailments or their challenges, could still reach for the stars, right? They can, they can still make huge differences despite the challenges they face. Yes, abs absolutely. And, I, you know, just to conclude the Dixon story, I, I said there were three great points when I, eventually I, I just couldn't. Uh, I'd gone down to four days a week and at some point I just couldn't even cope with that. Uh, and I went to them and said, uh, look, my, um, guys, it, it is time for me to go. I, I can't remember if I had three months notice or six months notice. Um, but they just sent me off with a lot more than that. And it was just right. astonishing, really. There was no requirement to, to give me any more than that. And yes, throughout my journey with 
a seller of yeah funky stuff ipads and whatever but basically uh running um big sheds in out of town um locations selling washing machines and, and cookers they were just just wonderful and my previous experiences i'd always gone for the fun stuff um, I'd been a holiday rep. I'd worked for Disney and I worked for David Lloyd Leisure. So it was always just more fun than, than top career. And actually, some of the highlights came from my Dixon's time. And it was astonishing. Yeah, which is, again, such fantastic. And do you think that was because, was it was that genuinely driven from the top, that sort of culture, that behavior? Or was it just that you had good influences in the business? Um, a bit of both. I, I, I'd like to think I was doing a good job. Um, but no, um, my um, I, I was very senior in a FTSE 100, and um, I know my the, the CEO Seb was directly involved in the decision to keep me on. Um, at the time, um, I made the move, and we had to recruit my replacement. And I was involved in the interview of the recruitment on my replacement. Uh, I can remember I was with either a walking stick or a crutch at the time. And she joined. She's gone on to, she's a board member at uh, Premier Foods now. She uh, joined partly because she saw how well I'd been treated. So, um, I, it, yeah, it was just just a, a knock-on effect, but it, it had become, the decision had come from the top. Mm, which is great. It's heartwarming. It's fantastic. Okay, so Mark, let's now get a little bit deeper because um, the bit I'm really interested in as well is knowing that the, topic of our discussions about how people do the complete opposite they change the rules change the game i'm really interested to uh, have an example of perhaps more specifically where you've behaved in a way or done something or taken some action that's completely the opposite that really had a impacting outcome for you or your family or your colleagues or your friends have you got an example that you can perhaps take us through on on something on that subject yeah, um, uh, I've mentioned that I went for fun and uh, the timing of my career, I was at university. Um, I'd been a holiday rep in uh, the ski ski resorts of Switzerland and France before I joined Manchester University and I was doing French. So um, a, a language course means a third year out and uh, in, in France and uh, that so happened to be 1992 which, um, if you recall, uh, dear listener, uh, was my first symptoms, but it actually co- coincided with the opening of Euro Disney, which I went along as, really as a, a holiday rep. And I, I guess I was kind of a, a posh holiday rep because my job in that first year of, of uh, Euro Disney was looking after A-list celebrities. So um, I had Michael Jackson in my car for three days, Remember, I know we've wow. got some scandal that we can talk about now, but um, uh, at, the, at that point, it was the three questions were, does he have an oxygen tent? No. Is Bubbles the chimpanzee with him? No. Has he had plastic surgery? Oh, bloody hell, yes. Um, but yes, Michael Jackson, <laughs> Kevin Costner, Clint Eastwood. It was just a son uh, Mitterrand, President Mitterrand, George Bush Sr., just an astonishing um, career for a 20-something-year-old. Um, and but, but at the end of that year, I was supposed to go back to university. And my, my poor granddad died every day. He, re, he, he would nag me about it. And when are you going back? But I wrote to Manchester University and said, can I have one more year off? Um, because I'm really enjoying Disney. And um, 
uh, I never went back. So I've done three years of a four-year course at um, Manchester University, but I had 10 years at Disney, which was obviously hugely formative. That was eight years at um, Disneyland Paris, um, a year or nearly a year at Walt Disney Television and a year on a corporate comms um, project. And now you mentioned family. So so one, 10 years at Disney is amazing. I've got cuddly toys coming out my ears and beautiful pictures and statues and whatever. But more importantly, I met my wife. Um, she was marketing director for the gaming division at the time. She went on to be marketing director for Disney stores. Um, so yes, um, yeah, a bit too much Disney. And that's why we left in the end. But that totally shaped my career. Uh, having met all these celebrities and seen them being interviewed and filmed and whatever, uh, I sort of moved into PR naturally. So it one, I met my beautiful wife with whom we've got two beautiful children and um, two, it shaped PR uh, as my calling in life. Which is fantastic. And uh, yeah, what a great story. And uh, it's one of those things when I've, again, I've got a few colleagues that, that um, are in marketing global marketing that, that get to meet the A-listers and, and some of the stories are just off the scale. I mean, some of them are heartwarming, some of them are shocking, but but all in all, it's 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 a, it, it's an experience that you can't not enjoy. It's it's part of life's experience, right? So unbelievable. So thanks for that. And again, really, really interesting story. So as you then move through your career, you have now found yourself in PR. Try and take us down the journey of, of you know, that, that situation where you, you have to get comfortable feeling uncomfortable where you do something that, um, again, perhaps goes against the grain or isn't what most people would normally do. Is is there another example you've got that may take us on that journey? Well, I, I've taken you through the, the Dixon stuff, but I think the magic of PR, I started in consumer PR. So, again, you know, uh, Disney announces this Um Dixon's is selling great, you know, 399 laptops, whatever. But then I moved into corporate and the, the, the most wonderful, and it's awful to say this, but the most, the most wonderful times where you really earn your money are the crises. I dealt with so many at Disney, uh, one of the hotels burnt down or, or partly burnt down in oh, 1994, 90, 1995. Um, if you Google Mark Euro Disney and Sequoia, you'll find my first appearance in the New York Times. I was on the phone to national, international media while we were lending clothes to people who'd been, who'd, nobody was killed, um, but um, everybody um, had had to leave the room, the, the, the hotel quickly. Um, but um, yes, all through my life, I loved the crisis. This was the time when you had an element of control over a flapping CEO generally. This took me through the 2008 downturn, which uh, probably feels relatively mild compared to what we're going through now. But that was a massive downturn and um, Dixon shares were down as low as nine pence. And yeah, there were calls from credit insurers. These are people who I don't even quite understand, but they ensure the products, they they ensure the manufacturers against us going bust. Um, and it, we were really up against the wall um, with the CEO called John Browett at the time. 
Um, and, um, and then we went through the merger, Dixon's Retail to Dixon's Carphone, um, which not sure it worked out very well because as it turns out, smartphones were integral to, to our lives, but actually people were not buying them every two years and the transition for, for they're just great phones now and you don't automatically update them every two years. So Dixon's became a little bit the dominant force and now smartphones are, are just a category alongside washing machines and laptops and whatever. So it wasn't right, be- the right, best merger, right, but the, again, the, the, that was a huge business transaction dealing with Sir Charles Dunstan, just a, a wonderful time. So um, that was a bit of waffle, but I, I really just wanted to say that PR, we, we sometimes get a bad rap, um, but when there's a crisis on, um, and whether I was doing that in PR terms or, or social media terms, I earned my money. I, I guess uh, it's something that luckily I'm not particularly familiar with. I've been through one or two crisis uh, issues, but not that I've had to manage. I've had a great communications manager director that's that's managed it. And when you when you see how they address it, it's actually it is a skill set in itself, right? And um, and it, and it's pretty. It's the ability to undramatize something that everyone else is dramatizing. So it's um it's it's pretty special when you see it unfold. Yes, um, yeah, and, and like I said, you see the CEO flapping, and I've gone through all my roles. There's always been a crisis handbook. You know, how to deal with the crisis. And every single time I've chucked it out the window because every single crisis and issue, you know, because there's a big crisis like, you know, Dixon's nearly going bust or um, a hotel burning down. But there's every day somebody say writing to the CEO or tweeting to the CEO or a a small issue in a store where a, a manager's behaved weirdly or whatever. And just every time, the answer is different. And, and we, oh gosh, there was a whole, there were pages and pages of sample responses to a crisis at, at Dixon's. And I was supposed to update it, but I never did because every crisis risk required something or, or minor issue. Every single one required a different response. Every single one. Yeah, yeah of course. I guess harnessed by the fact of whatever that issue is, it's all about does it tick one box? Is it doing the right thing? You know, are we behaving the right way? And, uh, and I guess that essentially becomes the umbrella statement. Yes. So, you know, there's, there is a formula. You need to apologise or explain and say what you're doing to sort it out, et cetera. So there, there, are, there is a basic format. Um, but uh, beyond that, uh, yes, it, 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 you just got to make your company. When I explain PR to people, I say it's getting, getting your company in the papers when you want them in the, in the papers and keeping them out when yeah. you don't want them in the papers that, that, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's yeah, the that's basic skill <laughs> that's a great summary yeah um so just uh, the next bit I'm, I'm i guess i'm interested in, as we sort of move into the final stages is I'm, I'm interested in how you have helped and been engaged in the charity that you've recently recently left i mean i'm interested in understanding that charity and and shift.ms and and how that's helping the community of which you've been part yeah so um i think um that there there are three or four um ms charities all fulfilling a role so there's the big one which is uh, the ms society um and that's got reams of information and do great publicity um for 
MS, which is, I think, the most common disabling condition in young people. It's normally um, diagnosed between the ages of 20 and 40. And I was diagnosed age 39. But uh, looking back, I had it in my tw- in my early 20s or mid 20s. Shift.ms is founded by uh, an, an MSer, that's what we call ourselves, an MSer, um, who uh, was diagnosed young. And really, when you're diagnosed, you don't want to see the bloke in the wheelchair. And, and a lot of charities deal with the later stages because you don't, early on, you don't want know what to do and you, you fear the wheelchair. And, you know, I have to confess, I was kind of repulsed by the wheelchair. But it's yeah, fine. Yeah. Um, I play wheelchair rugby now, really badly. Um, but um, you know, it, it's fine. Um, but um, so George was young. He's still the CEO, um, and he couldn't find a place to talk to people, like-minded people, people early in their career of MS. And so he founded Shift.ms to to fulfil that gap. So he wasn't he wasn't avoiding wheelchairs, and wheelchair users could be. You know, for example, there's lots of paths of uh, MS, um, but he founded it to, just to chat and say, look, you know, you go on. It's it's like a social network, but for people with MS or carers, but you go on there and say, look, I've got this tingling in my right toe. Anybody had a, any idea what to do about it? Is it MS or am I imagining it? And you can chat away. It's just a, a, a social network where you can talk anonymously if you want to, because a lot of times you don't want. I, I was very lucky in the way I was judged um, by people and colleagues and whatever. But a lot of people don't want to. I, I blurted it out. That's my natural instinct. And I, I kind of regret that. But, you know, I got through it. Um, but people just want to know stuff. And research now shows that if you get hold of a an MSR early um, and get them on the right treatment path, exercise, healthy eating, healthy sleeping, etc. Um, the outcome is much better, and, and um, there won't be so many people even now as getting as seriously ill as me. And the hope, and the reason I still campaign both for uh, MS but also the wider disability environment is well for MS. I'm, I'm hoping my son's not here but they have a they have a higher chance of developing ms than the average person Um, so you know i'm hoping treatments will continue to improve and disability is just um it's actually the largest minority you know diversity is this huge buzzword now is it not but on a panel and i'm always speaking on panels um or or you know um, keynote speaker or whatever um but Always the default um, for a diversity panel is gender, sexuality, ethnicity. And then if you're really lucky, disability, despite us being the largest, sort of somewhere between 15 and 20 percent. So up to one in five people have a disability. And there's one, um, I don't want to scare you, but there is one saying that, you know, anybody, everybody is just not yet disabled. Um, and th- th- there's some truth in that, you know, you hobbling along 90 year old, a 90 year old with a walking stick, he, he she is disabled. So um, I-, I just need to shout out for disability. Yeah. And again, it's one of the things, as I said before, you know, my colleague, uh, Mike, his peer group at me, us are inspired by the way he goes about it because it, it does bring, it changes 
the disability conversation for the good, and um, and it's and it's that inclusion, that recognition, um, and, and understanding that there's so much that we as a society, able-bodied, are missing out on by by the lack of inclusion of of disabled. And I think um, it, it's it's been spectacular to watch, and, and your testament to that through your beliefs and your views on what you've gone through yourself and what you've been going through, and, and obviously supporting your colleagues in. Um, in in the charity and the campaigning work, so you know, um, you know, more power to railway. Well done. It's it's been great. It's a great inspirational story. So listen, we're going to wrap it up now, Mark. Um, I've really really enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed listening to the story uh, and the stories. And I guess on the back of your experience, your knowledge, your wisdom, your career, your life experience, if you had to give one piece of advice to somebody that wanted to tackle a challenge or become an entrepreneur or start a business or they was anxious or nervous about a decision they was going to make, whether it be disability related or whether it be career related or, or starting a business related, what, what, what one piece of advice would you give somebody that was really teetering on the edge of not knowing what to do? Golly, uh, I think um, people as employers are underrated. So we'd all like to work for Apple or Disney or whatever. Um, I wouldn't have minded working for Jim Beam. But um, the choice I made to work for people who were decisive in, in asking me to work for them, and then and also I enjoyed their company during the interview process, that was massive for me. I guess that if I'm allowed um, two pieces of advice, um, so that, that was the one. So consider the people you're working for, not just the sexy brand or this, your sexy idea, but choose the people to work with. Um, the other point that I, I have to, because I'm disabled, is um, I've got to mention the diversity point. It's, it's the new tick box. So 10 years ago, we were talking about green and most people now get it. And that you know everybody has their sustainability programs. Now, diversity, everybody kind of understands they need to do it. They employ a, a diversity and inclusion officer or they have chats from people like me to train them up on disability awareness, for example. But the value of diversity in a company just is not rated enough yet. And diversity includes gender. I always make the point that suffragettes fought for women's vote over 100 years ago, and we still haven't got equal pay and equal job opportunities for women. So um, when you add in ethnicity and all the other diverse communities, there's so much work to do, and there's so much value in having a diverse workforce, and you're then dealing with diverse customers. Of course, yeah. And the diversity is where the richness is. And I think that's the bit where, as an intelligent species, why has it taken us so long to realise that we're missing out on all this enrichment? But listen, it's it's about momentum, right? So we're on the journey. Um, uh, ESG is now becoming a, a, a number one agenda on most boardrooms. And I think you know part of that inclusion and with people and, and ambassadors like yourself and like Mike Adams that are pushing this disability conversation, change the conversation, um, Hopefully, it's going to it's going to get some traction at a much higher, accelerated pace, and to everybody's benefit. Yes, and thank you for being an ally. You, you know the fact you're talking to me, and you you deal with Mike Adams, who who I know well, also. Um, thank you. 
No, you're welcome. You're welcome. And um, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you, Mark, and it's been incredible getting to know you. And uh, I wish you all the best for the future. I hope we can stay in touch in one form or another, If uh, um, and especially if we can perhaps get, get together with Mike one day, be even great, even better. Um, but thank you very much for your time. Thank you for sharing your story and your candour, and uh, I hope to see you again soon. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I apologise for any building work sounds behind me. <laughs> no problem. Cheers. Wow, what a great story. A huge thanks to Mark for taking the time to talk to me. There's some interesting stuff come out of that discussion. The fact that he was diagnosed in 2007, yet he could put his finger on pretty much the exact time that MS had kicked into his body in his early 20s, back in 1992, because of some feelings that he had that he then realized were linked to MS. Yet, with the stiff upper lip attitude that we tend to have as a society, he decided to take no action, it'll be okay. And how different may his life have been if he'd have acted and reacted at that time, no one knows. But then also, listening to the story of Dixon's retail and then Dixon Carphone. The empathy that his team showed, and ultimately the CEO at the time, where their care for Mark meant that not only did they do the right thing, but they enabled Mark to thrive and the business to thrive as a result. They didn't act with fear or malice or concern. They genuinely put their people first. There's a lot of businesses could learn a lot from that story. Um, and the power of giving people the, the strength, the resilience, the comfort, the safety to be their best selves, despite the challenges and barriers that they face. And of course, the joy of listening to Mark's journey at Disney and the ultimate quest that he met his wonderful wife during that journey and, and had two incredible children and that he's still living life with fun and joy, despite his ailments. And of course, he's now a campaigner where he's doing good for lots and lots of other people, bringing disability and diversity to the fore, which is where it's always belonged. So thank you so much, Mark, and appreciate the time you've given us today. I'm Jeff Dewing author of the best-selling book, Doing the Opposite, and chief exec of Cloud Facilities Management. CloudFM are changing the rules of our industry and doing the opposite to create best value for our clients. If you'd like to know more, please visit our website, cloudfmgroup.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. You can also find out more about the podcast and my incredible guests at podcast.cloudfmgroup.com. Finally, a big thanks again to my team, Nicola Crawshaw at CloudFM, Sarah Waddington of Astute PR, Thinking Hat PR, and of course, my incredible production team, What Goes On Media, who have helped me launch this incredible disruptive podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>